All right, book of Genesis. So this one I want to do like an overview to kind of give us an idea of where we're going to be going over the course of the next months. So the first question I have is, have any of you ever read Genesis? All right. Have any of you read Genesis in the last year? All right. So some of you have some, and that's fine. Um, how many of you would say Genesis is my favorite book of the Bible? Is anybody in that camp? I know people are like that. Like they love the literature. They love Genesis. So I just wonder if there's anybody that's like, yeah, I love Genesis. All right. That's good. Just curious how many people would say that. So the word Genesis simply means beginnings or origins. So here in Genesis, we're going to see the beginning of lots of different things. We're going to see the beginning of all living things. We're going to see the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the earth. We're going to see the beginnings of plants and birds and fish. We're going to read about the origin of sex and marriage and family, the origin of sin and death, sacrifice and covenants and murder, and many more things. And Genesis deals with the major questions that we have about life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Why do we die? Where can I find hope? And so on. But the first thing I want to do, just to make sure we're on the same page, first thing I want to say about the book of Genesis that I think sometimes can be overlooked is that Genesis is primarily about God. It is primarily about God. Yes, it's about Adam, but we can get lost in the sauce sometimes, right? It's about Adam. It's about Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph. But primarily, this is a book about God. It is about God creating and revealing himself through his creation. It is about God cursing and punishing, as well as cleansing his creation. It is about God making covenants and blessing his people. It's about God talking with his people and walking with his people and leading with his people. And perhaps most importantly, it is about God's amazing patience. <laughs> oh, 50 chapters of people doing all kinds of stuff and God sticks with them. So we are going to see a story of patience. Genesis is the beginning of a glorious, redemptive story. It is the beginning of a glorious redemptive story. Now, the book of Genesis can be divided, many will say, into two parts. So if you have your, your journal and you want to open, verses 1 through 11 are about God and his universe, God and his creation. Then when you get to verse 12, things change, and it's about God and his people, or God and his specific chosen people. So in verses 1 through 11, it's more this broad thing about all people. Then you get to verse 12, and we zero in on really just one small group of people that God has chosen. So it's 1 through 11, God and his universe, 12 to 50, God and his people. So let's just take a minute and talk about these two things. So the first one is this. First section is 1 through 11, God and his universe. Now, everybody knows chapters 1 and 2 are about God. What does he do in 1 and 2? He creates. No trick questions. I'm not trying to trick you. Yes, he creates in Genesis 1 and 2. It is God beginning. The whole book begins with an eternal God creating a good universe in chapters 1 and 2. And then it's all downhill from there. All downhill from there. Chapter 1 and 2 is, is, is as if God is building a set. So I know that Casey and Lydia were just in a play. You know, some of you saw the play. Some of you like plays. Think about it this way. Genesis 1 and 2, God builds a set for the play. Earth is the stage. 
birds and trees and fish and sun and moon and stars are the backdrop. Then God casts the actors. He writes the script. But instead of him sitting in the director's chair, he becomes the main actor in the play. That's what Genesis is all about. So he begins with this glorious two chapters of creation and everything is good and life is thriving. And then you hit chapter three and it's a downward spiral. Conflict fights between Adam and Eve. The first murder as Cain kills Abel. We're going to get to chapter four. Turn to chapter four. Chapter four, I think, is the first song in Genesis. Do you know what the first song in Genesis is? It's in chapter four. It's in verse 23, and it's actually a gangster rap. Look what it says in verse 23. Lamech says to his two wives, Ada and Zillah. Maybe I'll get some of you guys who know music to put a rap to this. He looks at these two wives and goes, hey, listen to my voice. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. You think Cain was bad? I'm badder. And that's what he says. It's just part of the downward spiral that we see in the book of Genesis. In chapter 5, everyone's dying. Every paragraph ends, and he died, 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 and he died. Chapter 11, we've got people trying to build a tower so they can look greater than God. It just keeps going. So just think about your Bible for a moment. I know you guys probably don't have your whole Bible. Maybe you brought it with you this morning. My Bible, this Bible has 1,167 pages. 1,167 pages. It only takes me to get to page three to watch man and woman rebelling against God. (laughs) Three pages in to almost 1,200 pages, and already there's disaster and rebellion. At page four, we have manslaughter. At page five, God declares that every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. I mean, that's pretty sad, isn't it? Five pages into almost 1,200, and things are already an absolute mess and a train wreck. And in fact, chapter 11 ends, this first section, chapter 11 ends with us wondering if there's really any hope for humans. There is no serpent-crushing descendant of Eve. The human race is completely out of control. In fact, when you finish up chapter 11, you find out that there's finally a woman named, other than Ada and Zilla and Eve, and this woman is possibly the one who's going to now help the human race, but then we find out in verse 29 of chapter 11 that she is barren and has no kids. So how's the serpent going to get crushed? Where's the hope going to come from? The world is spiraling out of control, and the only woman left who can do anything about it is barren and has no kids. So chapters 3 to 11 are hopeless. Hopeless. There's tragedy. A dirge is playing over those chapters of trial. But then we get to chapter 12, second part. So 12 to 50 is another whole section. It's about God and his people. In chapter 12, God promises that he's going to rescue the world through one family. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. It didn't dawn on me until this week. That Genesis chapter 12 is the single most important chapter in your Old Testament. That verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 12 is the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. 
for your Christianity, for you to love Jesus and to be in covenant with Jesus, Genesis 12, 3 is probably the most single important scripture in the entire Old Testament. If you're there in my Bible, I have blocked it in, marked it, highlighted it, because I think it sums up many things. Chapter 2 gets to it, or verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, God says to this man, Abram, that we know nothing about except he has a wife, Sarai. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be blessed. And then look at verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise fulfilled is why we are here today. That verse sets into motion Everything you and I know about the gospel, about Jesus, and about salvation. Romans, or Galatians 3, some of you may have memorized, says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I think we have that to put on the screen. I want them to see it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, what does it say? The blessing of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles. So that verse is why I say that Genesis 12, 3 and 4 are the most important verses in my Old Testament. (laughs) Because Christ is going to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to me and to you. So we've got this hope. But if you know anything else about chapter 12, our hero, Abram, begins a very dysfunctional family, does he not? We don't get to chapter 12, and he's with Pharaoh, and he's fearful for his life, so he tells Pharaoh, she's my sister. He's lying to save his own skin about his very wife. He's willing to forfeit his wife and his relationship with her. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Hello, hello, Abram. And instead, he's giving up his wife to protect himself. So the, the spiral just begins, and from chapter 20 to chapter 50, or chapter 12 to chapter 50, we are on this dramatic roller coaster with this family as one terrible thing happens after another and God patiently endures and loves them. And oh, what a roller coaster it's going to be. We've got barren women, famines, plagues, drunk, naked grandfathers, lying about women being sisters three times, Men plotting and telling their sons, or women, moms, happy Mother's Day, moms plotting and telling their sons to lie to their father so that they can steal blessings. We've got a dad tricking a starry-eyed boy so he gets both of his daughters married off. We've got war. We've got extracting family members from prisoner, as prisoners of war. We have dreams, inappropriate laughter at times when no one should be laughing. We have men giving up their inheritance for a bowl of soup and women giving their husbands to another man for a mandrake. A little cake, a little piece of bread. We have girl fights, 
There's rape. There's revenge. There's decapitation. There's brothers betraying brothers. And the trouble goes on and on. In fact, I love the way that Genesis' book ended. Everyone knows Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that it's all about God creating and bringing life. Look how Genesis ends. Chapter 50, verse 26. I don't think there's any coincidence to how this book is book ended. Verse 26. So Joseph died. Verse 26 of chapter 50. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now that's a radical difference, is it not? From chapter 1-1 to chapter 50 at the end. This book goes from God creating life to a dead body in a coffin. Think about it. Genesis begins with God creating a beautiful universe, an amazing earth, humans to enjoy God. Everything is created and wonderful, and it ends with a dead body in a coffin. There's supposed to be an alive son in Canaan crushing the serpent's head and bringing blessing to all nations, and instead the only person we think there's any hope to have that come from is dead. And in Egypt not even in the land he's supposed to be in. So this book really, once you get out of chapter 3, is just a downward, downward train wreck. So let's talk about some other facets of this book. The author, everyone believes, is Moses. Good, not Noah, Moses. Some people don't agree as to how Moses wrote it. Moses wasn't born until 300 years after Genesis happened. The events of Genesis happened. So how, where did he get his data from? Some think that all his trips, Moses goes in and out of the tent of meeting, that God told him what to write. Others think that he got his information from, the, uh, from the God's people when they came out of slavery in Egypt. That's kind of where I lean. Let me just explain why, because it helps us understand what's going on as we read this book. Okay, Moses wrote it, and I think Moses wrote it. It wasn't just dictated to him, because you'll read later, Moses in Exodus, that he went to school in, Egypt's, in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house. So he was highly educated. He knew literature. He knew how to write. Um, so he was certainly able to do it. And even though the Israelites didn't write things, they would pass things down orally. They had oral tradition that was very strong. And you can check me on this, but I think if I, if I did my homework right, it was possible for someone after the Exodus, to sit down and have conversations. You read the book of Genesis, you see this, that there's up to nine generations together. So you could sit around the campfire with your grandfather and grandmother, your great-grandfather and great-grandmother, your great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother, your great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Wouldn't you love to do that? Hear their stories? Like, tell me about my, my history. Well, that's what they would do. They would sit and do that. And so in Genesis, it seems like there's times where up to nine generations are alive and together on the earth, passing these stories down. So that when they get out of Egypt, Moses now has all this time with them, 40 years of wandering, to get all this information, to record it in the book of Genesis. So I think he did it. Maybe the only, only thing he didn't write was I don't think he wrote Genesis 1 and 2. Because he didn't get that from God's people, did he? God had to tell him. God was the only one there at creation. So God must have met with Moses and said, Moses, here's what happened at the beginning. Write it down. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one and two. You've got to figure the other ones out as you talk to the Egyptian or you talk to the Israelites, but here's one and two, and he gave it to them. 
so they would have it. So they're the original audience. It's God's people as soon as they come out of slavery. And as they're standing on the banks to go into the promised land, it was probably all finished by then, and he was able to give to them this copy of Genesis as they went into the promised land. Now, why would he do that? Why would he want them to have this copy of Genesis before they went into the promised land? Well, I think Moses wanted to encourage these post-Exodus Israelites by writing down what God had done. He wanted to encourage them. And he wanted to remind them of who they are and where they came from. And that really is, I'll use some words, hopefully you'll understand, the backbone of Genesis or the melodic line that runs through it or the thread that connects everything in Genesis is this repeated phrase, these are the generations of. We're going to see that phrase 13 times. These are the generations of. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. We get the first one. This is something I'd encourage you to be marking as we go through your Bible. There's 13, like I said. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the... What's it say? Good, the heavens and the earth. Give you one more in chapter 5, verse 1. These are the generations of Adam. And then so on. We're going to see the generations of Noah and Shem and Jacob. So we're going to keep seeing this phrase over and over again. And this is God's way of reminding us and them of our family history. It seems that it's a big deal to God that we know where we came from. He wants them to know they're part of something very big and that they are linked back to the beginning of God's rescue story and that we are linked back to the beginning of God's rescue story. See, listen, this is how God thinks. It may not be how we think because we're very individualistic as Americans, but God believes it is very important for his people to see the greater community or the greater history that we are a part of. He believes it's important for his people to know that they're part of a greater story than just ourselves. So he wants post-Exodus Jews and 2021 followers of Christ, both, to draw strength and identity from his faithfulness and how he has orchestrated his salvation through generations upon generations upon generations of real people all the way to us today. I think that's why that phrase is in there over and over again. Genesis is your family history. It is your family history. You have a card that I gave you guys that's in your Bible. Genesis 3, 7 through 9 is there. Galatians 3, I apologize. I think Genesis so much. Galatians 3, you guys have it on your card? I want to read it. Galatians 3, 7 to 9. This is why I'm saying it's important for you to know where you came from. Know then that in those, in, in, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verses is there to help remind you that you are connected to this story through faith. 
Faith in what he was looking forward to. Faith in what we look back to. We are connected. These are your ancestors we are going to read about. These are the ancestors of promise. Listen, we only gather here today to celebrate Jesus because of the promise God made to Eve. Because of the covenant he made with Noah. Because of the covenant he makes with Abraham. And because of the covenant with Abraham was kept throughout all of those generations, over and over and over, until the blessing is poured out on you and on me. So what do the New Testament writers have to say about Genesis? The book of Genesis is quoted, verses from Genesis are quoted 43 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. 43 times the authors of the New Testament go to the Old Testament. Every writer of the New Testament quotes something from Genesis. Everyone. So name your New Testament writer, John, Paul, Matthew. They all go to Genesis. And you probably know this, but Jesus goes to Genesis over and over again as well. If you look at your card, you'll see the verses here from John 8. Put those on there as a reminder. I'm just going to read the red, the red part. This is a way of getting us all on the same page. I love this. Your father, Abraham, this is part of a larger context, and you can read it later. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day and saw it and was glad. I know we wonder sometimes, like, how much did the Old Testament people get what was coming? Well, it seems here that Abraham got more than we usually give him credit for. He somehow saw the day. He saw what was going to happen. God gave him insight into what was going to happen in Christ, and he rejoiced in it. He was glad in it. So the New Testament often will point back to the Old Testament, highlighting what was going on in a way to build our faith that even Abraham got a glimpse of what Jesus was going to do when he came. So according to, according to the inspired authors of the New Testament, the people in Genesis are real people. They're not made up. They're not just representatives in some way, and we picked a generic name to throw over them. They're real people. So Adam is a real man who lived. Noah is real. Sarah is real. Rebecca was a real person. And according to the inspired authors of the New Testament, the events, not just the people, but the events of Genesis are real events. They really happened. So God really made the universe out of nothing. Cain really killed Abel. The flood really happened. Fire and sulfur really fell on Sodom. Joseph was really sold into slavery and then saved everyone from starvation. So these are real people and real events, and they're meant to work their way deep into our hearts. That's what these stories are meant to do, to work their way deep into our hearts, not as moral examples to us, not as examples of how we're to live or not to live, but as the unfolding of God's rescue story in the lives of your ancestors. That's really what this is all about. So we're going to see ourselves in their foolishness, <laughs> We're going to see ourselves in their mistakes. We're going to see ourselves in their sin. But we're going to draw hope from how patient and long-suffering God is. We're going to see how God is faithful to keep 
his covenant promises and how good that is for us. How good it is that God is never going to change his mind. I sometimes can change my mind before I've even made up my mind to know what to change it to. Not God. He makes a promise. We read it in Genesis 12, and it keeps getting teased out and expanded, and we see more of it throughout the entire Old Testament. So these real people and these real events are going to build our faith and give us hope, but they also foreshadow something. Many of these stories are going to foreshadow the gospel. So you've got to remember the Trinity is active in Genesis. We're going to see the Father. We're going to see the power of the Spirit. And I know this is hard for us sometimes to wrap our brain around, but Jesus is there in Genesis. He's there. The pre-incarnate Jesus is going to be in Genesis. So the Trinity is there. And we're going to see their work and their character, their attributes. We're going to see what they value. We are going to witness um, the fall of of Adam and Eve as they set our universe into a bad place that needs to be rescued. We're, We're going to walk with three barren women in Genesis. Three women who can't have children. And see how God miraculously gives them a child as a foreshadowing of someone else who would miraculously have a child. We're going to walk with Abraham and his son Isaac up a mountain as he goes to slaughter his only son as the foreshadowing of someone else who would be slaughtered on a hill. We're going to see a ram stuck in a thicket as a substitute for his son, which will foreshadow something for us. We're going to experience God cursing people with new languages so they can't build a tower as a foreshadowing of how God one day will reverse that and bring new languages in order to bless his people. We're going to join Joseph on his journey. And we're going to see him at the end saying what man meant for evil, God meant for good as a foreshadowing of another event that's even more evil that God meant for good. So there's real people, real stories from your past that foreshadow what we're experiencing and being blessed in today. But there's two people, maybe, real people in Genesis that maybe are mentioned more often in the New Testament and that are very important to us specifically. Both of these characters help us to understand the gospel in perhaps a unique way. The first is Adam. We're going to see a lot about Adam, or should I say the effects of Adam's sin, as we go through the book of Genesis. On your card, you'll see Romans chapter 5. You want to look there with me. It's a long passage. I put it there for you to be reflecting on as you work your way through Genesis, as we continue to to go through Genesis together. But what Romans chapter 5 does is Paul compares the one man Adam to the one man Jesus. And I love how he does it. It's brilliant. It's the one man really messed it up and the other man really got it right. The one man caused all the trouble and the other man figured out how to fix it. And so that's what this is about. I just want to read it to us. It's good just to read God's words. I want to read this to us this morning. Here's what Paul says about Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death reigned through sin, and so death spread to all man because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So even as we study Adam, we're going to say he is a type of the one to come. What type is he going to be? Well, he's going to tell us here in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one transgression brought condemnation. But the free gift following many, trans, many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increase, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What good news that there's a second Adam. The first Adam jacked it up, just like we would have. But we've got a second Adam who came and did everything right that the first Adam got wrong. The second Adam comes and does everything right that I do wrong so that we can have the hope of righteousness through the one man. And so we're going to see that. We're going to see the development of that story as we go through the book of Genesis as we look at Adam. But there's a second real person that is going to help us understand the gospel. You may already know who this is. It's Abram or Abraham. We're going to follow his life for quite a while. We're going to, second half of the book really is just four generations, right? It's Abraham and his family. So we're going to follow his lineage very closely. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, we get a glimpse of why Abraham is so important to our understanding of the gospel. And I'm just going to close with this verse for you guys to consider if you want to write it down. This is Romans 4, verse 18. This is talking about Abraham. So Paul writes this, In hope, Abraham believed against, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So just pause right there for a second. <laughs> Let your brain think about the things we don't believe is going to happen. Imagine what he had to hurdle, get a hurdle over. <laughs> I'm 100. My body is weak and falling apart, God. I still don't have a son, but I'm going to believe with hope that somehow there's still going to be an offspring. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he's got two strikes against him. His wife's been barren her whole life, and he's old. Like old, old, old. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he 
grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us today. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if I had to sum up what we're looking for, what do I want to see God do as we go through the book of Genesis? Well, may he do in us the same thing that he did in Abraham. May we grow strong in our faith, give glory to God, fully convinced that God is able to do everything he has promised. I pray, and I'm going to pray in a minute, that that is true for us. That each one of us can say that when we're done Genesis, that we grew stronger in our faith, we gave more glory to God, and that we're more convinced than ever that God is able to do what he has promised. Amen? I want to pray to that end. Let me pray that for us. God, I pray that you would make our faith strong. Strong like Abraham's. God, that even when everything seems to be stacked up against us, may we believe promises. Promises from your word. Specific things in your word that relate directly to us. And may our faith be strong, believing that you will do everything that you have promised you will do. And may that cause us to bring you much glory. Spirit, I ask you to help us. I pray that you would indeed increase our faith. And as we work our way through this book together, that we would find ourselves rejoicing in you more and more, seeing you clearly, and that our lives would come more in line with yours, that your thoughts would be our thoughts, your heart would be our hearts, and our, your actions that we would follow appropriately to living the way you've called us to live. And so, God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for recording this book for us. And I just pray that it would have its attended effect on us throughout the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen.